Welcome to the Team Health Podcast Program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, what they don't teach you in residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health's Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is one of our series discussing the work-life imbalance that many of us have to address in our daily lives. Today's program certainly goes beyond the medicine. We're talking about the consequences of clinical burnout. Lots of clinicians experience significant burnout. Some get depressed and angry. Others experience self-harm. While emergency medicine is listed as the most burned out specialty, it's not by much since most specialties have substantial numbers of clinicians with work-life imbalance. Joining me today is Dr. Kip Wenger, an experienced emergency physician. He spent many years in academics. He became a medical director at the University of Tennessee, the Knoxville campus. Dr. Wenger has been a regional medical director, and now he is the Team Health Regional Performance Director for more than 200 practices in the Southeast. Kip, you've had common and unique experiences addressing imbalance and burnout. I've heard you speak with heart and wisdom on this topic. Thank you for joining this program. It's my pleasure. I'd like to talk about the consequences of burnout. You're a senior medical leader. You've seen a lot. Give us some perspective. Senior medical leader, is that code for I'm just an old guy? An old Pretty guy much. With gray hair. So yeah, <laughs> I, I joke that I'm a PGY-33 emergency medicine doc. And you know, as I r- ran the list of people that I've um, dealt with, and, and one of the cool things about my current situation is that I travel all across the Southeast, looking at 150 different hospitals. And as a gray-haired emergency physician, a number of times people come up to me and say, hey, you're still practicing clinical medicine. How are you doing it? I've been here, I've been doing it for a year, and I'm thinking about changing jobs, careers, and I, I'm, I'm toxic already on this thing. And so it, it's kind of hit me hard. And, you know, I've had some personal experiences, as you alluded to, that really, you know, have uh, changed the way I felt about it because I, you know, as I talked to you before offline, I've kind of been a burnout denier. You know, in my residency program, eating was described as a sign of weakness. You know, that's what, and that's the way I trained. So I was lucky to be there. So for me to complain, you know, you don't complain, you're happy to be there. So, so tell me, why, why are you talking about this? Why is this important to you and why now? Maybe as you get older in emergency medicine, your paternalistic uh, urges, if you will, develop or, or uh, tendencies develop. But as I said, I mean, I have feel like to some extent um, I'm a mentor for some of these young guys and gals that come out of emergency medicine residencies. And I see the, the frustration and the sadness and, um, you know, some of the outcomes of their burnout. And, and, you know, it's a tragedy. It really is. And we're losing a huge number of folks. And I think it's, frankly, it's an avoidable thing. Uh, we don't, and while it's out there in the press, I, you know, we don't really talk a lot about what we can do to prevent it. I know you are a mentor for a lot of people. How do you define burnout? You've seen plenty. The literature talks about the depersonalization of patients. And for those of us that are practicing emergency medicine, I mean, think yourself, how many times have you heard somebody described as that dirt ball, that dirt bag, that gomer? And we hear it. And for many of us, we just kind of, that's just, that's the, the work environment. And for people that don't practice medicine, I'm embarrassed for them to hear this, but we know that goes on. But it starts with that depersonalization, 
the cynicism, the lack of feeling value in what you do. They don't think what they do is important. And they are emotionally exhausted. And all of that comes together and manifests itself with a number of different things that we, I think we're about to talk about. Yeah, we are. Before that, uh, do you think burnout is unique in healthcare? So I do think that physicians are predisposed to burnout. And I think it's a function of the fact that the personality type, we're perfectionists, we're goal-oriented. We've been waiting for this opportunity to be an attending physician, and it's oftentimes been eight years. And we've delayed our gratification. So the first thing you do, you get out, you get this brand new job with a huge salary, a huge jump in your salary at least. You buy a car, and let's be honest, you're in, for most of us, you come out, you're in debt, you get this job, and then all of a sudden the reality is that the job that you have was not the job that you expected to get. You're not happy. And all of a sudden, your patients are not happy. And all, you know, for many of us, you translate shifts into money. And you're, you're, well, maybe if I buy more stuff or a bigger house or a nicer car, maybe that will kind of fill that thing that's empty inside of me. And it becomes this kind of downward spiral that ends poorly for many. They leave the careers um, or worse. So I want to talk about the or worse. You've experienced a really dramatic, traumatic event that, though it happened a little while ago, probably is still very fresh in your mind. Would you be willing to share that? I certainly would. I mean, uh, it is, even though it happened four years ago, it's still an emotional uh, event for me. It, it changed me a bit. I do think, uh, by way of background, there are a couple things that you should know about that we really haven't hit on. One is that, can you believe there's something called online uh, dropoutclub.org, which basically is a site for physicians that are tired of clinical medicine to go find a job. And that there are over 50, so I looked at this just the other night since I knew we were going to talk, there are over 50,000 people that are out there looking for the, the medical clinicians, were clinicians, trying to get non-clinical opportunities. That's issue number one. And issue number two, if you go on Amazon.com, there are book titles like uh, Physician Suicide Letters. Why do physicians die by suicide? There are books written like this. So think about it. If you went into a profession where there were people writing books about how in that profession people kill themselves or letters, suicide letters, would you, would you go into it? I, I, don't get me wrong. I, I'm very ha I'm a very happy physician. I enjoy what I do, but I'm deeply disturbed by what's going on out there and what, what you see out there. So I do want to, and by the way, you know, there are like 180 feedback on the physician suicide letter thing. So I, I suspect the people that are reading them are physicians. They're not, you know, they're not regular people. People are reading these books um, for a reason. So, and as far as the events that we'll talk about, you know, I had an opportunity uh, to work with a very excellent emergency physician who was kind of in our special ops program. And she's a 34-year-old gal, really solid, clinically just uh, terrific. And um, the week before the traumatic event, I had gone out to dinner with her because I was trying to recruit her for a site. Uh, and I could tell that something wasn't quite right. And, you know, it was me, a recruiter, and her, and we're talking. At the very end, I said, you know, you're doing okay. And 
you know, I could you could just see there was like a tear in her eye. And I'm a very kind of demonstrative person. I gave her a big hug and said, you know, if I can do anything, just give me a call. So didn't think anything of it really at that point. Um, a week later, I'm working in the emergency department and uh, a friend, a colleague of mine, I'm in a double coverage, level one trauma center, says to me, hey, you got to go to trauma bay one. And we zone our coverage. And I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not covering trauma bay one. He goes, no, you don't understand. You got to go to trauma bay one. And I went over there and there was the physician that I had, been, had dinner with the week before. And she had um, taken lidocaine, numbed up uh, four of her vascular sites, her carotids, her femorals, and taken an 11 blade and cut down on those and cut her, all four of her vessels. And um, she was still awake. She was still kind of oriented, which was, you know, you know, the medicine part kicks in and you're like, physiologically, her blood pressure is 60. Her lactic acid was almost in double digits. It was nine and change. You know, her hemoglobin was four. Like, she shouldn't be alive. She's going up to the OR, still not intubated, still able to con converse. And I was devastated. I was, how could somebody that good, that bright, that positive, you know, do this to themselves? What could bring, and there, there were other issues in there, but clearly she was, uh, that was the, the path that she took. Uh, she felt was the path, the right path to take. And it, it just, it, it really uh, got to me. And she did not survive. I, she went up to the OR. I thought she was going to do fine. I mean, heck, she was talking to me. I, I called the surgeon. Actually, the surgeon called down to me and said, Kip, she didn't make it. I'm like, what do you, what do you mean she didn't make it? I was she didn't even go upstairs tubed. Uh, now she coagulopathic. She couldn't make it. She didn't make it. She just bled out like crazy. We couldn't control it. And, you know, I, the, the tragedy, I've been going to her funeral with all her colleagues, you know, and it was just, it was like the car accident keep, kept recurring. People kept coming in the emergency department wanting to talk to me about this person. But it made me dig into this topic of physicians hurting themselves and what could bring, I'm not a person that ever in my wildest dreams could think of that. Um, but I, I told the story and, and Team Health was kind enough to let me tell this story to try to help. And I didn't really think that much of it. It went okay. And then the social media hits started coming. And there are like thousands and thousands of hits of, of people looking at this. And I would walk down a hall and a complete stranger to me, a physician, would come and grab me and hug me and say, thank you so much. You have no idea what that meant to me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it was, the, it was the video. Said, you know, I was, I was close. I'm like, what do you mean you were? I mean, I'm dense. What do you mean you were close? I was close to taking my life. That helped me. Like, what? I mean, so why do I talk about it, Rob? That's what I talk about. Now, that's the extreme. But these people that are changing careers, you know, it, it, good physicians that are changing careers, that are losing touch, I think there's an opportunity to, to, to improve the situation. That's why I talk about it. Well, I'm glad you do. It certainly tells a story that makes a difference, but how horrific. You said earlier that you're a burnout or were a burnout denier. Um, have there been changes in your life and your practice? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I realized, you know, my own, you know, your, your spouse is often your, a, a good spouse is uh, really helpful and, and, and for this whole process. And, 
I was working a number of clinical sites, and my spouse told me that she could tell where I was working by how I was acting. And it kind of was like a bam in the head kind of thing. I, I realized, you know, I'm probably not behaving as well as I should at this one particular site that was very stressful for me because of some of the operational inefficiencies. And the frustration for me came from the fact that I'm supposed to be the operational efficiency guy. And here I am, and I can't make this, I'm struggling with making this place better. It wasn't the patients, it wasn't the nurses, it wasn't the acuity. I love all of that stuff. But it was the fact that this was such a dysfunctional place for me to work in that I needed to make a change. And I made a, I made a clinical change. And you know what I did? I got, I got myself a scribe. And for me, you know, I think everybody has these pressure points from a burnout standpoint. There's not one prescription that fixes burnout. But for me, the EMR is a very frustrating thing. And I, I'm fortunate enough, again, to work for an organization that helps support the scribes. So I got myself a scribe. I work in a place where I feel, uh, frankly, much more valued as a clinician and even as someone pushing some of the operational metrics. So. Uh, it's it's been game changing for me, and the irony is the thing that I used to hate the most, like working nights. I I worked a lot of nights, and it's fine. It's it's and there are twelve hour nights to boot. I'm not sleeping, by the way. It's not it's not that sleepy a place. It's it's a good place with good staff, well supported, and I kind of felt like I got a second life, second lease on life as far as my career goes. It's huge. So figuring out how to make your practice work in a way that's comfortable, not painful, and so you're able to leave without exhaustion, physical and emotional, has made it, it sounds like has made a difference. Can, can you, go sorry, ahead. Sorry, can I follow up on that though? Because yeah. one of the pieces, and this is, you know, I'm a, not a touchy-feely guy. I really am not, I don't feel like I'm a guy from New Jersey who, <laughs> so that should tell you something. But I, when I had this, having the scribe made me deal less with the, the medical, the EMR, but you know what it did that I didn't, ex, didn't realize? It made me connect to the patients. It made me talk to the patients. It made me realize what I was missing. And in emergency medicine, we know that there are people that you would no more want to get in the car with and go on a long trip. We have some people from under the bridge and people that built the bridge and the whole cross section and spectrum of, of the world, which is one of the things that I'm fascinated about and I, and I like about emergency medicine. But I found myself on a shift making a connection with a person that I didn't feel like I ever had the time with when I didn't have a scribe. And it, it really opened that up. And that was, that was a game changer for me. It really was. Perhaps on a, another uh, one of these podcasts, we can talk more in depth about scribes because I think that they have great value uh, to all of us. And I'd be interested in talking with you about that. I'd like to ask you to focus on what a medical director or a colleague and a friend might how they might recognize that somebody is under this kind of stress and what what should they do about it? Yeah, I mean that's you know that. Let's be honest. That situation that I that, that I just described, I I have often wondered, did I miss something? Did I miss a sign? There I was, and I could tell this person wasn't right. And w could I have intervened? Was there something that I could have done differently? So it, you know, the role of a medical director is critical in this. The role of colleagues 
are critical, but uh, you know, what do you do? What what do you look for? And I think we all know that the person that was normally punctual that now shows up late, the person that's never had complaints now gets complaints, the person that's disheveled or has issues. Sometimes we see it in the world of you know surfacing and substance abuse. Somebody that drinks more than they used to drink. Some of these signs that individually may not sound like a big deal in aggregate, you know, all of a sudden tell a story. The other piece of it is the person who, you know, is searching for more stuff, you know, and it, I don't want to turn it into the materialistic, but I, I feel like we have to protect providers from themselves. If I do two more shifts, I can buy this trip. If I buy three, if I do four more shifts, and all of a sudden you see people that are working 18, 20 shifts in a row. And they, they are dramatically pulling these extra shifts in. And I don't think that's good. I mean, this is this. We How many times have you heard, you know, this this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And you've got to sometimes protect these folks from themselves. It's a lot to ask. So you recognize it. <clears throat> what can you do? As a medical director, one of the things that I would say to you, and and this kind of kind of goes back to me a little bit, is this idea that there are these reciprocal domains of wellness. If I could just talk briefly about that. It's not, it's not my idea, and it's probably very difficult to visualize on a podcast, but if you think about it, there is this operational efficiency. So that is the issue of how well does your apartment work? Are you boarding? Do you go into a shift and you're re- apologizing for the first 20 minutes at every patient encounter? That's what I felt I was doing. That was shrinking. Is there a culture of wellness in the facility? And both of these, by the way, these two reciprocal domains are, in my opinion, owned by the facility. But the last and is your own personal resilience. And, you know, you, this is the idea that how tolerant are you, are you of the fact that, you know, you've got 40 people boarding, that the first patient you see when you go into a shift has been waiting three hours. It's, every, it's an argument. Some of us, I was more tolerant when I was younger, quite frankly, than I am now. I think you have to understand yourself and understand where you are in that. And if you're in the wrong place, maybe make some adjustments and also try to create your own resiliency. I, I don't, it, it, so often when you hear about burnout, you hear it being the conversation gets thrown back on the provider, like it's the provider's fault. It's your fault for being burnout. And I, I think we own a piece of our own personal burnout, but I think there are two other large quadrants that contribute to that as well. So this is not something, you know, and we joked before about you can't do exercise yourself out of burnout. People try. You can't eat. It's better than drinking yourself out of burnout, probably. But you can't eat granola and do yoga and then make this go away. I mean, obviously, a healthy lifestyle is important. Getting sleep is important. But don't blame the provider for the burnout that they're experiencing. That would be my argument. So make sure that the, there is a culture of wellness. In some hospitals, they have a chief wellness officer now. They have meetings across the river at the hospital that one of the hospitals I work in. They have monthly meetings with providers where they bring different groups that, frankly, don't normally talk to each other anymore because of the communication system and bring hospitalists and emergency physicians and specialists together on a Friday night to just kind of hang out and have some appetizers. And yeah, maybe a cocktail. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not. But at least they have a conversation and dialogue outside of medicine, and they create that connection. I do think for me personally, and I don't mean to take my personal experience and push it on everybody else, that it's this connection with 
this connection with patients that's so, so important. Because I find it ironic that at the same time we're talking about physician burnout, we're talking about patient experience, patient satisfaction. I think, I think there's a connection there. I really do. And as somebody that shadow rounds providers, not surprisingly, anecdotally at least, people that are the most burnout are those that are having the most difficulty in their patient experience and patient satisfaction. And it kind of just spirals down. Sounds like what you're saying is that you've got to keep an eye out and recognize it, whether you're a medical director or just a friend of a clinician, and that there are some options. I, I know we've separately talked about finding EAP or <clears throat> other portions of the organization, and part of it is having an organization that values the relationship that we have among each other and values and encourages a more connected relationship with our patients and tries to clear some of the other things that get in the way, out of the way. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Um, do you, would you like to share some final words? And I know that one of the reasons that you stay in practice is uh, you have a story about a, what you call the little old lady story. Would you, would you share that with us? Uh, I appreciate it. And maybe this, this may be only meaningful to me. So, but I, I had this experience uh, fairly recently where I go in to see this elderly, and I mean late 80s-year-old woman who's there with her three daughters who are holding vigil around the bed, and she's there for weakness, not taking PO well, and just kind of what would be called the dwindles. And so she gets the work up for the usual suspects, the urinary tract infection, the pneumonia. And all I find is that she's got some dehydration, a little bit of ketones in her urine, a BUN that's jacked up. And this lady, by the way, she's alert. She's oriented. And, and that's all I find. She's just not eating and drinking really well. And I sat down because I'm doing better at connecting with patients. And I sat down and I said, and I looked at her and I'm going through the lab test and the daughters are leaning in. And I said to her, I, you know, I said, I went over the labs. I said, so things look looking pretty good. And she kind of had this troubled look on her face. And I said, is there something else that you'd like to talk to me about? And she nodded her head and she didn't talk. I'm like, okay. And, and I said, would you be more comfortable talking without, with your daughters not in the room? And she, she nodded her head, yes. Now, now the daughters are glaring at me. The daughters are the one that brought this woman in from the assisted living. And I looked at the daughters and I said, you know, would you please excuse mom? She wants to talk. So the daughters step out and she says to me, 65 years ago, I was pregnant. I'm like, where in the world is this? I'm thinking to myself, where is this story going? I go, yeah. She said, I didn't keep the baby. Okay. And again, I'm, I'm a little dense. I'm not, I'm not getting it. She goes, I had an abortion 65 years ago. I said, yeah. I said, and, and uh, I'm sorry, help me understand. Um, I'm afraid. Afra I said, afraid of what? She goes, I'm afraid I'm not going to go to heaven. And it, it dawned on me that why this lady was here. And I mean, I have a white coat on. I sat down, I took the time and you know, I said, well, you know, I don't, I'm a spiritual guy. I'm not the most religious guy. You know, did, have you consulted your, uh, your pastor, your minister? And she said, yeah, I, I did, but they were not very reassuring. 
And, you know, I went on to tell her that, look, the God that I believe in is a very forgiving God. But the point of that story is to say, this lady made a judgment on whether she could share this most intimate detail of her life with me. And I'm very proud of the fact. Now, I realize we have huge pressure to see patients as quickly as possible. I'm pretty fast. I see, I see patients quickly. Uh, but I, and I, I really want to make sure you understand that. But I think what we do is really important. And experiences like that, I think, I think if we each had one of those, not every shift, but in, in a career, those are the kind of things that keep me in it, that make me really appreciate what we do. And while we kind of blow some of this stuff off that happens on a day-to-day -day basis, I, I look at you and I say, man, what we, what we do is really important. And don't ever forget that. Don't ever minimize that. You put the white coat on there. It's, it's an honor to do what we do. We're very fortunate to do what we do. And people trust their deepest, darkest, most crazy secrets with you. And uh, don't take that for granted. Uh, that's a huge responsibility, but it also makes me feel like what we do is important. And that's why I do it. Kip, I can understand why she would have shared that story with you. It's easy to understand. Um, you get the science of medicine, but you are a rare person who gets and lives the art of medicine as well. Thank you for <clears throat> ending this podcast on a positive note that's important to all of us, the connection that we make, the reason many of us went into medicine in the first place. Kip, thank you. Rob, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. I hope you've enjoyed this Beyond Clinical Medicine podcast with Dr. Kip Wenger. If you have any questions about this topic or suggestions for others, please contact me at beyondclinicalmedicine.org. Thank you.